Thank you, Wes. I'd like to take just a few moments this morning to uh, tell you about one of my friends. Uh, Wes, Wes and I did not plan this, I promise. Um, and uh, while Wes is one of my friends, as are you, I'm not going to tell stories about you all. That would just be rude. Um, but uh, so I had this friend at seminary, uh, and his name was Alan. And really quickly, Alan became referred to in our little group of friends and by our kids as Dr. Alan which was funny because he wasn't actually a doctor yet, although he was on the Ph.D. track, and he was the smartest guy most of us had ever met, and he had studied things that most of us had never studied, and so it was just real easy to call him Dr. Allen. So uh, he uh, is now a Ph.D. and is teaching at a seminary, and just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. But as brilliant as he is, uh, he's an even better guy and was a great friend uh, to our family and some hard times. And so Dr. Allen is, is quite a character. He was an unlikely friend to me as someone who grew up in this part of the world and kind of shaped by the things that we experienced. He grew up in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> one of his jobs where we would say, you know, I hauled hay one summer, I built fence one summer. He said, yeah, I worked at the docks one summer. And so he credited his foul language to the docks experience. I'm not sure, you know, which is worse, building fence on ranch crews or uh, being at the docks. But either way, that's, that's how we got where we were. And uh, we became friends. And Dr. Allen, as we were all leaving the place where we had studied together for four years, at the end of this four years, he got us together, or we were together already, I can't remember, and, and he spoke to a few of us. And being Dr. Allen, he prefaced this comment of revealing his feelings with, you know, Aristotle once said. <laughs> And that tells you a lot about Alan. I can never say that. You know, Aristotle once said, because I, I hardly know what Aristotle once said. But uh, Alan, he said to us, he said, you know, Aristotle once said at the end of his life that if he could have anything in the world, he would have his friends. If he could just have one thing from life, he would have his friends. And that's always stuck with me because we've experienced that. And it doesn't surprise us that a great philosopher at the end of his life would say if all the things you could ask for in life, the greatest may be for friends. This story that we're going to read today in Luke's Gospel is a story that invites us to consider the incredible power that we find in faith and friendship. Friendship and faith turn out to be critical elements of discipleship or following Jesus. In fact, when Jesus speaks to us, to you and to me, he often refers to us as friend. So we'll begin reading in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, starting in verse 17. One day, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. We'll just stop there for a minute. <laughs> One verse in. So I think that we're meant to be, as we begin reading this little bit, we, we think back to the last verse of the preceding paragraph where Luke tells us this. But Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. And I couldn't even get into the text of today without speaking to that one first because they're so connected. So Jesus has called his first disciples, as you heard about last week, and then he heals a person in a great little experience. And then Luke throws this in at the end of that story. Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
And then he introduces us to another scenario where Jesus is surrounded by people. And as I read those together and was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, we are supposed to see this connection here. Jesus withdrawing to a desolate place to pray. This is one of the most evident and fundamental things about the life of Jesus. And yet I personally find it to be one of the hardest things to practice. One of the last things that I tend to stake my life upon, even though it's one of the most basic and fundamental and evident things about the life of Jesus. And why that is and why there's that gap is probably another sermon. But I at least have to mention it. We know that it's there. What keeps us from it is a whole manner of things. And here we are following Jesus in this context. He's gathered with, and all of the players are present. Anybody who's anybody in Jewish law is there, and they're listening to Jesus as he's carrying on, as he's teaching. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. This was the first thing that I read this week as I was studying that I went, huh? What? The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. What does that mean? Isn't he the Son of God? Isn't the power of God always with him to heal? Why would Luke tell us that the power of Jesus was, I mean, the power of God was with him to heal? And it's kind of interesting. This is the last time that Luke mentions that the power of the Holy Spirit was with Jesus to heal. I think what he's just saying is, just like he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray, the Spirit of God, the power of God, was with Jesus to heal. Anywhere he went, anytime. Remember his anointing we talked about a couple of weeks ago where he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and release freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, so on and so forth. So this is just Luke reminding us that Jesus is not just here of his own accord. But there is a greater power. There's a bigger story that's going on, and Jesus is playing his part. Okay, the Holy Spirit is with Jesus in an ongoing way, and Luke doesn't mention it after this. <clears throat> All right, and behold, verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and laying down before, laying him down before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. We'll just pause right there for a second. And behold, this is a great wake-up word. It's a word like amen that's kind of hard to translate in English. And, it's, and so we just kind of leave it as behold. It's not a word we use every day. You know, when we talk to each other on the phone or write letters, we don't say, and oh, behold, by the way, lo, <laughs> Wow, it's kind of one of those just big wake-up words that lets us know something big is about to happen. So it's pretty wild to me that behold is immediately followed by some men. We're introduced to the subject of a sentence and a story, and all we know about them is they are some men. And I can't help but pick on men for a minute, because normally when you start a story with some men, or there were some guys, we lower our expectations all the way to the floor. We're going, some men, you know, once gathered in my living room to watch a football game. I mean, what do we really do? Some men, you know, it's just our thing. So I get licensed to pick on men a little bit since uh, here we are. So, but these guys surprise us. They surprise us in a pretty amazing way, and they actually surprise Jesus. Some men were bringing on a bed or a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in. And we'll pause there again. 
these men who were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in, says it twice, and lay him before Jesus, the very next verse, but finding no way to bring him in. It sounds like a familiar challenge to me. It sounds like a friendship challenge. It sounds like a discipleship ministry challenge. We who are seeking to bring people in, but finding no way to bring people in, we're stuck. We know what that's like, right? We want to bring someone in to the presence of Jesus, whether it's inviting them to a thing, bringing something to them, sharing Jesus with them in a unique way, and looking to bring someone to Jesus and not finding and finding a dead end. that we can't get there. We know what it's like to be stuck in that way, wanting to bring someone in and not finding a way to bring someone in. I think this story is meant to let us know that we're not the first ones to experience that. So what did these guys, these some men, what did they resort to when they're wanting to bring this man in before Jesus and they can't find a way, what do they do? It would be an easy time to give up. It would be an easy time to say, let's just come back tomorrow. You know, it's crowded. And we're going to have to wait an hour or two. Let's just come back. I don't see us getting in here anytime soon. These guys and their friend, they're desperate though, and they do something drastic. They begin to peel the roof tiles back and lower this guy in on his bed, on his stretcher, and lower him in and place him in the middle of the crowd before Jesus. And just picture, I just picture this for a second. If someone were to try to lower somebody in through our roof today, through our ceiling tiles, and down here before us in this crowd, I mean, it's like Mission Impossible meets backpacking, meets some ropes course you've been on. Just imagine, I mean, these guys with ropes and belay, and they're working this field town, and there's dirt and thatch and everything else falling in. It's quite a scene. And if you've ever been a homeowner who's had to replace a roof or have a roof patched, have something placed like a skylight or a roof vent or something like that placed in your roof, when you weren't replacing the whole roof, you know how almost impossible it is to get that to not leak. I mean, that is a chore, right? When someone starts messing with your roof, now I don't know ancient Near East roofs like we know composition shingles here in West Texas, but it is a burden. If somebody messes with your roof, it is bad news. And often you just have to replace the whole face or the whole side or whatever. So again, me as a, you know, touchy, kind of, I don't know, grumpy homeowner, I'm thinking, this is... This is bad. This is a bad story. You shouldn't have done that. You should have just waited your turn and come in through the front door like everybody else. But these guys are desperate. And for their friend, they do something drastic. So their mission is accomplished. They set out to bring this guy before Jesus, and they accomplish their purpose. And a couple of things happen. Jesus notices them, and he comments. And the text says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, man, says to the man, man, your sins have been forgiven. Our first observation is that Jesus notices their faith. Well, what is faith? It's a positive response to Jesus. It's a positive response to Jesus being there. And they respond, they respond positively to that. And so Jesus calls that faith. Luke tells us when Jesus saw their faith, 
he spoke to the man in question. Now, whose faith did he see? Did he see the faith of the man who was in a bind, who needed some help? No. He saw the faith of his friends. Isn't this unbelievable? He sees the faith of this guy's friends, and he says, okay, let's talk. And then he turns to the man and says, man, your sins have been forgiven you. Faith on behalf of others is action. I mean, this is not, thank you for believing in me, but they, they respond with their hands and their feet and their roofing skills, and they bring this guy to Jesus. It's a positive response to Jesus' presence. And as we're in the middle of this story, can you think of a time, can you reflect on a time, I've been asking if I can reflect on a time, when someone has been a friend to us in that way? Someone had faith and friendship on our behalf. Maybe it was our parents. Maybe it was a mentor, a coach, a teacher, somebody that stood there for us and had faith on our behalf when we were struggling to have it on our own. As we reflect on that, also ask, who are those people in our life, in our lives, who could use this kind of faith from us? Who are those people that are around us that we see that are our friends and we go, you know, they could really use someone to carry them in, someone to lower them down in the midst of the crowd where Jesus can get to them. I watched one of our church members act in this way recently. As not very long ago, he learned about a good friend uh, that he grew up with who had a terminal illness and not getting good news that he might recover but still hoping that he might this man uh, begin to pray for him get other people to pray for him and rally around him try to bring him before Jesus but when that physical healing did not come I watched as he continued with acts of faith and friendship even gathering with the community of faith at a funeral in another town, to rehearse together with those people again, that while death is awful and tragic, it does not have the final word for those who follow Jesus. The second thing that we notice is what Jesus said to the man. And it seems kind of out of place. Jesus says to the man, man, your sins have been forgiven you. And we look at that and we listen and we go, okay, Jesus, that's all fine and good. Thank you for the church words. But did you not see that this guy has a physical ailment? Did you not see that he's in a bind physically? That's why he's on a stretcher. That's why we had to lower him in through the roof. Did you not notice that? Why did you just start talking about the fact that his sins have been forgiven? Why is it so important to announce that to him and to us? One of my favorite characters from a movie, I say recent, but it was like 15 years ago. So that's about how recent I am on movies. Uh, the 2003 movie Open Range, where Kevin Costner plays this guy named Charlie Waite. And Charlie Waite is... Um, a man of few words, towards the end of the movie, he speaks up alongside his friend 
when they're facing a fight, which probably means death for them, and they're just contemplating one more time whether they want to go through with this process of kind of stopping the bully. That's what the story's about. And so they're laying there together before the sun comes up and in their bedrolls and just kind of outside looking at the stars. And they're deciding, you know, do we really want to go through with this? Is it really worth the risk? And Charlie Wade says to his friend, you know, you may not know this, but there are some things that gnaw at a man worse than death. I always love that because it speaks to those things within us that we, that gnaw at us, that wear away at us, even worse than death, which is something that works on us pretty good. So I think Jesus is speaking all the way to the center of who this person is. When he goes straight for the core need, he he passes through physical and spiritual and emotional and psychosocial, and he says, man, I see you. I see the whole story, and I want you to know that your sins have been forgiven. Forgiveness is not the first thing that we list when we think of basic human needs. But the longer we're at this together, we realize this is a pretty basic human need, the need to be forgiven. The ramifications of having a physical ailment in that day for this guy meant for one that he could not be a priest or a leader in the synagogue. And for two, in some communities, it meant that he was not welcome at all in the worshiping community. So he is experiencing alienation. He is experiencing exclusion. He's experiencing separation. And Jesus has just sort of introduced to us, and Luke has told us the story, the whole concept of sin. And what does he do first? He describes it as alienation, as separation as exclusion. We each have times in our life, or we will have times if we haven't already had those times, and maybe we'll have them again, where we will assign the label unforgivable to an action that we have committed or to a type of person that we have become. So I think part of the response to this gospel text is to hear the words, you have been forgiven. Past tense. Perfect. Passive. For you English teachers. You have been forgiven. For us to hear those words and to give thanks for the friends who have helped us to hear those words. And maybe to give thanks to Jesus, who has begun calling us friend. Friend. The words, you have been forgiven, announce a reality that since Christ has walked on the earth and later died on a cross for our sins, these words announce a reality that has already been accomplished. These are words that must be then taken to heart. It must be appropriated in our lives. We understand that this is something that was accomplished, that Jesus did out of love for us, and the work has been done. We sang a song about it earlier. 
the end is written. And so our part becomes laying hold of that by faith, taking hold of that, hearing those words and remembering them again and again and again. Are there any words that are more transformative for us, that are more awakening for us than the words, you have been forgiven? These are earth-shattering words, words that catch us by surprise and speak to the core of who we are and the lives that we live in a world that is filled with alienation and exclusion and separation. We know what it's like to be separated from God. We know what it's like to be separated from others. These words begin the process of transformation in our lives. And as Christians, we spend the rest of our lives trying to work out the reality and promise of what that means. I'm so thankful for friends that I have who, among other things, act as confessors for me. People that I can call or write or visit and say, again, list the list of things that I would deem unforgivable. Things I have done, person I've become. And they can go back through this with me one more time and say, Ryan, let me remind you that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And that proves God's love towards you. So, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And we celebrate this and need that like daily bread very often to hear those words spoken back to us, reminding us of our future and the hope that we have in this life and the life to come. I think back to old Dr. Allen, and most of the time I think of him and I just laugh because he's just a funny guy. Um, but if I think a little while longer, what I remember about Dr. Allen is that he was there for me in some of the darkest days that I've ever faced. And he was there for me sometimes with words, sometimes with no words at all, sometimes just to walk to class and be quiet. But he was there. And faith and friendship are non-spectacular things. We, I think, sometimes want to make them spectacular things. And certainly faith and friendship are spectacular in a way, and the results and that kind of thing, but they're really ordinary things. Being a friend, having faith in the reality of Jesus, acting on that, very basic, ordinary things. We are invited by Christ to live in this ordinary way for the sake of the world and for the sake of Christ. Just a little thing that helps me sometimes. That, um, this is a, a writer who's writing in medieval times, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. He, he talked about this sort of progression of love. So one way to think about how we're friends to each other and how we love each other, the way, kind of the quality of our love. And he said, you know, when we start out as Christians, we try to love other people. It's only natural. It's, it's kind of like children. We love someone else for our own sake. We, we, you know, I begin to love you because of what I see in you and, and what I can get from you. It's a very natural, honest thing that kids, you know, they love us. They love their parents because of what initially they receive from them. Um, then we grow up a little bit. We mature in our faith. We grow in our love. And then the next step is to love someone else for their sake. 
to just say, hey, it's a good thing that you're in the world. I see a little bit of you and who God's made you, and I'm going to love you just because you're who you are. That's a wonderful progression. That's a wonderful step of maturity. And you think that's kind of the end, but then he throws a little curveball in, and he said, no, the highest form of love is to love another person for the sake of Christ. I read that going, what? What does that mean? To love another person for the sake of Christ. But we know what that's like. Uh, we've experienced that kind of love. And think about it in terms of some friends that you have, and maybe they have kids or grandkids that you've never met. I think about friends that I have, and I've, I've, they live in other parts of the world, and I knew them really well 20 years ago. And now I've never met their kids, but I see their kids, and I love those kids. And I love those kids. Why? I love those kids because I love their parents. So I'm loving those kids on behalf of their parents, and it's the same thing that we get an opportunity to do as Christians. We love God's children because of God. It sounds like it wouldn't be a higher form of love, but it is. It's the best thing that we can give because who sees and knows someone better than God himself? So as we get to know God and as we grow up in the ways of God, we are enabled and invited to love, excuse me, to love people for his sake, the highest form of love. So, wrapping up, faith and friendship, again, non-spectacular, but powerful, every day, but life-changing, and faith and friendship define moments for us. When we're present to our friends in ready, non-anxious ways, not looking for the next big spectacular thing, but just being there, we poise ourselves for when these difficult times come, being able to be the kinds of people who would go to such wild lengths as to lowering someone down through a roof so that they can be in the presence of Jesus for their sake and for the sake of Christ. Amen.